Welcome to Frightening Frauen. We have Tyler, Lee, and <laughs> Kayla with us today. And we discovered Kayla on TikTok, and I thought that she would be perfect on here. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am 21 years old. I'm based in upstate New York. I have a beautiful one-year-old daughter who I am a first-time mother to. Um, and my TikTok is a content about borderline personality disorder. Yes. And I love your take on it. I love how you how you were talking about it. And I think I discovered you through one of your videos that came up on my For You page. So, oh, that's awesome. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Something. Um, Lee. <laughs> Sorry, me. I I see I see my I see my son outside, so I'm wondering if oh, he's coming over here or not. A, okay, um, no, we. So I love it. My mom has borderline personality disorder, and I think I was in your live and asked you some questions about that because I've had a lot of guilt myself with how to deal with having a parent that is not getting help for theirs and um, navigating yeah. that. And realizing that I don't, I can't control whether or not she gets help. So how, uh, yeah. how did you discover that, that you were living with this? Um, I was, I've been in therapy since I was eight years old. And at first it was just therapy for my ADHD um, and a couple of behavioral issues. And then as I got older, it started moving kind of into the more depression and anxiety, like teenage kind of stuff. Um, and then it started getting a lot worse. We went out 14 when I was in my first relationships. That was when my therapist was like, hmm, there might be something else going on here because I wasn't acting unquote, normal in my relationships. I wasn't acting like a regular teenager would in relationships. Um, I was very, very scared of being abandoned by my partners and I would do pretty much anything. I would threaten self-harm. I would threaten to unalive myself. I would threaten all this stuff. I would never threaten to harm them. Mm-hmm. But I would threaten to do things to myself in order to get them to not leave me. And that wasn't very typical of a teenage girl, even though everyone kind of thinks that it is because of Hollywood and uh, the stereotypical teenage girl like Twilight when Bella tries to do things to hurt herself. And um, I feel like we really have to kind of move away from that stereotype that that is normal because that was a huge sign that I had BPD was the fear of abandonment and the suicidality and the self-harm, the paranoia, because I would get so terrified that my friends were all out to get me. And it wasn't a schizophrenia type of terrified. It was a borderline type of terrified. Um, So then when I was 16, my therapist told me, she was like, hey, I think you have borderline personality disorder. I'm like 99.9% sure that this is what you have but I can't put it on paper until you're 18 years old. Mm -hmm. So we will work on it starting right now. And then once you're 18, we'll put it on paper and we'll work on it even more. So that's how I ended up learning that I have BPD. Wow. That's great that you were so honest with your therapist, because I know that 
it's so hard to diagnose because people aren't seeing themselves accurately or they don't want to see it in themselves. And that goes for a lot of different conditions, but borderline is a huge one. And I absolutely, yeah. And I think it's so important for all of us, no matter what, like no matter where you are on a spectrum of any sort of mental health is seeing yourself through other people's eyes as well as your own and kind of figuring out where in the middle we realistically are at because it's so it's so difficult to see because you can see all your justifications for what's going on in your own head but realizing from the outside perspective what's going on and how we're interacting with the world is completely different Exactly. And I feel like people need to keep in mind that everyone will react to a diagnosis differently. Some people will not accept the diagnosis at all. And unfortunately, it's designed and hardwired into cluster B personality disorders to reject that disorder to um, it's kind of hardwired into the cluster B disorders to not be self-aware to not recognize that you're making those actions and that you're having those issues. Um, people think that it's solely a narcissistic personality disorder thing to not recognize when you have those issues. But that's actually one of the things that all the cluster B disorders have in common is that it can be very difficult for us to admit it um, and to see it in ourselves because the way these disorders work is they prevent us from seeing that in ourselves. Um, and for me, I got very lucky when I was diagnosed, I was basically, she told me what it was and the symptoms and I was like, oh snap. And everything just kind of clicked into place for me. I was like, this is what's been going on with me. Now I know this is what's been going on. It was similar to having, um, if I could relate it to something physical, I'd say it was very similar to having a bucket of cold ice dumped over my head because at the same time as it was like, wow, I feel great. It was also very painful for me to learn to accept that I had a trauma-based disorder that other people caused for me. I can relate to that with separate diagnoses, but I, it's kind of, for me, it was very bittersweet in getting diagnosed uh, with both autism as well as CPTSD and attachment. I have, uh, I forget what, gosh, because I- Reactive attachment disorder? It wasn't reactive attachment. It was oh. a different one. Um, I had disinhibited attachment disorder where oh. I, it was kind of the opposite of reactive attachment where I wasn't attaching to anybody, um, but everybody- so I wasn't attaching to anybody, but I also didn't want them to go away at the same time. I wanted them to be attached to me, but I didn't want to be attached to them. And okay, my, that makes sense. my oldest, and it was a, it was a trauma response, um, to the way I was raised and not feeling not, not trusting anybody else. And so after realizing that and being like, okay, I, I do need these attachments. I do need to be able to like, feel like I have somebody and not just that they have me, um, was very eye-opening. And, uh, my oldest son also has disinhibited attachment disorder and he has autism. Um, so it's very similar diagnoses to me, but they're more extreme than mine. And so I understand him but 
being on the other end of it, it's very hurtful at the same time. So it's very, it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. And I see how I treated others through how he treats me and it's very, it's healing, but at the same time, uh, it has a lot of guilt in it. Yeah. Uh, I get kind of the same feeling being a self-aware borderline, because once you become aware of the things you've done, whether it's because you're seeing them through someone else's actions, or you've just looked back on your own actions and you're kind of like cringing at all the stuff you did. Um, it's like, it's very, it's a weird kind of feeling because all at once you're just like, at the same time as you're like, okay, so this is the problem and this is how I fix it. You're also consumed with this kind of guilt for how you made other people feel and the things you may or may not have done to um, the people you loved in your life. And it's very difficult, um, especially for people with these disorders to kind of struggle with that because a lot of times uh, borderlines uh, in particular will go into what we call shame spirals, which is where we feel absolutely worthless. We feel like we're not worth living. Um, we feel like, you know, the only way to possibly make up for what we've done to people is to take ourselves out of the equation. I can totally see that in the people in my life who have it, that, and they are not self-aware. <laughs> um, and they do have that same like shame in their life. And I, on the outside looking into it, it feels very manipulative, but at the same time, I feel like they really do believe that and feel that way. And so- it's Exactly. Very, yeah, it's very hard on the outside. So what can people, when you are in that mode and you are feeling that way, what can people around you that care about you do to help? The best thing to remember um, before I get into what would help, the best thing to keep in mind is that when we do go into these shame spirals, it may feel manipulative, but that's not our intention. Mm -hmm. Our intention is simply to voice how we're genuinely, truly feeling because um, a lot of the time we are compared to people with narcissistic personality disorder. Now we do have some similarities with narcissistic personality disorder, like saying things like, oh my God, I feel so bad about what I did to you. I'm going to hurt myself. But within these disorders, there's kind of, separate um, reasonings for saying that. Now I can't speak for everyone with narcissistic personality disorder. And I don't, and I certainly don't want to demonize anyone with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, however, there are some people with that disorder that could potentially be using that as a manipulation tactic. And there are people with borderline that could be using that as a manipulation tactic. But the best thing to do is just to keep in mind that if someone is making threats like that, to take it seriously, because you never know um, if they're telling the truth or not. And when a borderline, especially a borderline, says something like that, or anyone with any disorder says something like that, you want to take it seriously um, because you never know. And, you know, every time that I've said I wanted to do something like that, most of the time I have ended up following through with those threats. Um, because I just felt bottom of the barrel, like, oh my God, how could I have done this to the person I loved? Like, for example, there was one time I, it was due to my borderline, but I'm not blaming my borderline because a lot of people feel like, um, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but a lot of, a 
a lot of people feel like people with borderline personality disorder use it as an excuse for their behaviors. And it's not an excuse for our behaviors. However, um, our symptoms can explain certain behaviors that we carry out, mm -hmm. um, but it's never an excuse. For example, my um, symptoms of impulsivity and my tendency to drink and my tendency to crave affection from whoever's there in that moment, um, that all kind of mushed up and led me to cheating on my ex when I was with him. And it was my decision. It was 100% me. I did it regardless of the symptoms that sort of, I guess they, they helped. They kind of, the symptomology of BPD helped me to make that bad decision, but it was ultimately my decision. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand that when we say things like that, we are discussing how the disorder could have played into it rather than saying, oh, well, it's not my fault because I have this disorder. So it's not my fault because that's not what we're saying. It still is our fault, but we just have to put in the work to get better with it and put in the work to recognize our symptoms before they lead us to making these decisions that we don't necessarily want to make. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I have a close friend uh, with BPD that I've known her since before she got the diagnosis and started doing the work. And um, before the diagnosis, like, if I was to like have a conversation with her, like a really honest conversation about something, because she had like these patterns of behavior of like getting connected to someone and then becoming volatile because she wasn't getting what she wanted, even though she never even told them what she wanted. It was so I, I would point out the patterns and then she would that criticism where I was trying to be helpful would cause her to do downward spiral into these like like literally was worried that she was going to hurt herself. You know, it was like terrifying where I started avoiding being honest with her because I was so afraid that she was going to hurt herself when, when I caused her to do anything that might trigger a moment of self-reflection. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and there was nothing I could be like, try to talk her through it and be like, I am literally not judging you. I'm trying to help. I think you deserve better. And it didn't matter because at that point she just felt so awful in herself. And she did eventually a diagnosis, which at first she was like, no, I don't have that and fired that therapist. And then um, she eventually got the diagnosis from another therapist and has done like years of therapy. And now like um, she can, she sees it. It's like, the secondary process where she's looking at her behaviors and instead of reacting right away, she takes time to really like think through it and, and not just react the way she would have always. And it's, it's been um, like, I'm so proud of her, but I'm also just really happy for her because she's not, she's not being strangled by this like misery programming that she had in her in the same way. It still impacts her, but like, she's just, a happier person that's more connected with herself and you know um but I'm still dealing with like I'm still afraid sometimes to talk to her like I I like basically had a trauma response to to uh and I'm still learning to like trust that the work she's done has made her more stable and stuff yeah of course that makes perfect sense actually 
um, with borderline personality disorder, a lot of us do struggle to accept. I was kind of a rare case in that I immediately accepted my diagnosis. Um, I didn't really second guess it or question it when I heard what it was. I was kind of like, yeah, that's exactly me. That is correct. Um, but there's this actual book about borderline personality disorder. I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. It's called Walking on Eggshells because a lot of the times people with borderline personality disorder, one of our biggest issues is that we feel our emotions to the extreme all the time. If we're happy, we're ecstatic. If we're mad, we're raging. If, if, we're, um, if we're sad, we're almost to the point where we're suicidal. Um, and because of the intensity of our emotions, it can make people feel like they have to walk on eggshells to and tiptoe around us and our emotions in order to not set us off. And that's where the self-awareness comes in. That's where we have to really look at ourselves and look at our behaviors and, and our emotions and be like, okay, I'm feeling very out of proportion. What would be the proportional way to react to this situation? What would be the way to react if my feelings weren't as big as they are? Because we have to kind of frame it like, okay, I have to kind of pretend that my feelings aren't this big. And that doesn't mean ignore the fact that feelings are this big. But it means how they are and then internally I will deal with them myself or I will talk to my therapist or someone I trust about how big my feelings really are. Is that the DBT that you were talking about in your life? Yes, DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy, and it is the number one recommended um, therapy for people with borderline personality disorder. It was actually created by someone with borderline personality disorder herself, Dr. Marsha Linehan. Um, she has equated borderline personality disorder to be the emotional equivalent of having third degree burns over 90% of your body. Gosh, that's one way to look at it. I was, because when you were talking before about knowing that you have it and knowing that it's a barrier and then moving forward with that, knowing that it's going to be more challenging for you to do things, but you need tools in order to move forward and, and continue. And it's always going to be a challenge, but knowing that it's there and using the tools, it's kind of equivalent for people who have physical disabilities of my leg doesn't work. I could just choose to not do anything anymore and not do anything about it, or I can use aids and it's going to be harder for me to do certain things, or there will be certain things I can't do. But I know that if I use these aids, I can move forward and continue on with the things that I want to do. It'll just be a little more challenging. And I don't think people who, I think it's hard for people who don't have any sort of mental um, or psychological disabilities or any conditions like that to understand that it is a barrier and it is something that you need tools for, you need therapy for, and it takes time to develop those things in order to move forward in life and do the day-to-day -day things that are, that come easy to some people. Exactly. And I feel like a lot of people need to realize that um, hidden disabilities are just as real as regular disabilities. Like you wouldn't shame someone for, using a wheelchair or having cancer and taking medication. So why do we shame people with mental health for taking medications? Or why do we say that 
people with mental health issues should just get over it and work past it when it's a lot harder than that. It's not as simple as that. Yes, we do have to work past it, but stop making it seem like it's the easiest thing in the world to do just because it's mental rather than physical. Mm -hmm. And then also knowing our own limitations, setting boundaries with ourselves and others and being okay with that. I know Lee and I both have to do that with our, with our um, neuro spiciness of mm. this isn't something I can do. And it's okay for me to say, I can't do this. And it's okay for me to need to take a break and take time for myself and having to realize that that's, that is a form of self-care for us. Yes. My BPD actually prevents me from working in food service um, my BPD and PTSD combined, they um, prevent me from working in the food service industry or the um, the retail industry because I worked that once and it was terrible. I had a horrible experience. My manager didn't give a crap about mental health. Um, I almost got fired because I was having too many PTSD episodes at work because um Unfortunately, my coworkers would constantly yell at each other, throw things at each other. Um, and it just wasn't a great environment for me to be in. And I would, you know, I would show up to work and give 100%. But then when I got triggered by my PTSD, I had to leave because I would be in an episode and I wouldn't be able to handle it. I'm a victim of domestic violence. I am a victim of sexual assault. I can't handle it when people are raising their voices around me, yelling at me were even just around me throwing things. I can't handle that. And that wasn't really respected. So I told myself that I would only from now on, I would only look into getting into fields that I want to get into, like the human services field. Mm -hmm. Which is great. I think we need more people like you that understand whether or not they have it or not, but like really dive into understanding um, the differences from people and not treating everyone like they're all the same. Uh, we need more people like you in those fields. It's huge. Thank you. I appreciate that. They should pay better. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, what I don't get is when people like enter a human services field for the money, because one, they don't pay shit. And two, if you're going into a job for the money, don't go into a job that's designed to help people. No, you should be there because you want to help. No, exactly. And because I got offered a position here as a domestic violence and sexual assault advocate. Um, and they pay 15 an hour. And I was like that you, first of all, they needed a degree, which I have the degree. And I'm like, anyone with a degree, like they can't afford their student loans in $15 an hour. Like I want yeah. to do that, but it needs to be a livable wage. I mean, if I didn't need money and I won the lottery, I would do it. And I would just exactly. like, donate, donate my pay back into the services that help these people, but I need to be able to survive too. So it's really exactly. difficult. Um, but yeah. Uh, so you did say that the, um, the conditions, the cluster B conditions are a trauma response. Do they, so do people already have tendencies and then trauma happens or does the trauma cause it? So what typically happens is it's usually a combination of genetic predisposition and trauma. Um, like your parent doesn't have to have it for you to have the genetic predisposition for it. 
Um, your parent could be bipolar, schizophrenic, or whatever, and you would have a genetic predisposition to develop something similar to that, like a personality disorder. Um, so what happened with me was I had a genetic predisposition for mental illness, um, and then I was traumatized at a young age. So that kind of kicked it into place. What happens when you do have the genetic predisposition factor is it kind of lies dormant and then until there's a trauma. And then once there's a trauma, that kind of starts to come out in adolescence and it kind of starts to be more and more obvious as you grow older, um, as you're going longer and longer without treatment, um, that you have some type of personality disorder is how the cluster Bs usually work. Um, for antisocial personality disorder, you can't be diagnosed with it unless you were diagnosed with conduct disorder by the age of 15, I believe. Um, you have to have been diagnosed with uh, conduct disorder in order to be um, considered having antisocial personality disorder. And that one, they do not diagnose until you're 18 under any circumstances. Um, and the other personality disorders, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic, they tend not to diagnose under the age of 18. But when it's very obvious, like it was in my case, they will. Um, the difference is when you're an adult, you have to have a six month history of pervasive patterns of at least five of the nine symptoms um, for six months. And they have to be disruptive in your life in order to um, meet the criteria for that diagnosis. Um, but when you're a minor, when you're younger than 18, you have to have a pattern for at least a year. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, my So my daughter her father has antisocial personality disorder and has been diagnosed um, finally is getting help for it um, was diagnosed at like in his early 20s but didn't start getting help until his late 30s yeah but she has he's not been in her life since she was a baby um, he did a lot of really horrible things in and out of jail uh, addiction stuff um, but I still talk to him to get like history for things that are going on with her. And it's been really eye opening the similarities. And she did have trauma from him at a young age and, mm -hmm. um, just the abandonment and loud and throwing things and be abusing me in front of her. But, um, she, so her therapist says she shows signs of um, borderline, but can't obviously can't diagnose her yet, but is keeping an eye on it. And we're kind of giving her those tools now to deal with those things as she gets older, as she's going through puberty and everything. Um, but early intervention is so huge for everyone and it helps. It really is. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't imagine where I would be today if I had gotten the help that I needed at a young age because I started therapy at seven, but it was all religious based and it was through, um, they could talk to my mom. They, it was very, they were not, they didn't have any degree or anything like that. It was just people that you talk to at the church and, yeah. um, they just taught me the opposite of what I needed. Uh, for having autism they taught me how to mask better is basically what they taught me 
So kind of like ABA. Yes. Um, ABA. So I, oh my gosh, ABA, we're actually going to have another guest on to talk about that. Um, They have um, psychopath. Oh my gosh. I can never say the word. They're a a psychopath. They were diagnosed um, and they do a lot of the same work, like trying to educate people on what that really means and what getting help really means and the stigma behind it versus what it, what they really go through. And, yeah. uh, and that's, what's so huge. But yes, it was kind of like ABA where they were like teaching me how to basically <laughs> mask better on everything, um, different aspects of my life. But I wasn't diagnosed until uh, my late twenties with autism. I was misdiagnosed with ADHD until then. Um, but yeah, it was, gosh, I can't imagine if I had actual help and they actually like listened yeah. and understood it growing up. And that's what I want for my kids and what I want for everybody. Oh, of course. I plan on putting my daughter in therapy when she's old enough because um, my family is very dysfunctional. And while I'm trying my best to not let it um, affect her, I know that it will. Mm-hmm. So I, um, for the time being, like, I'm going to put her into therapy because I know that it's going to be hard for her to have a mother with borderline personality disorder, even though I'm doing the work that I need to do on myself and I'm getting better for her. Um, There's going to be times where I get overwhelmed and triggered. There's going to be times where, you know, I may not respond appropriately. So I'm definitely going to get her into therapy early on, make sure that she she's given the coping tools and skills that she needs, um, make sure that I can explain to her in a child-friendly way that mommy has kind of, the way I plan on describing it to her is like, you know, when you get a tummy ache, mommy gets those, but in her head, mommy gets sick in her head. And that can make mommy very angry sometimes that can make mommy very sad sometimes, but it's never your fault. It's not on you to make mommy feel happy. Um, I definitely want to raise her with the knowledge that because I was raised with um, the fact that I felt like sort of I my parents depended on me for my dad depended on me for emotional stability. I felt like I felt like he kind of um, kind of blamed me for his mood swings and things like that. Um, And I just want my daughter to know that my mood swings are never her fault there because I have something going on in my brain that is not because of her. Yeah. And there's certain things that happen in our emotions when they are big that we can't control, like our body language, our tone of voice. We can't always control that um, crying and different reactions that um, aren't necessarily lashing out towards somebody else, but they are still visible to that child and could be confusing. So that's huge. And having just another safe adult they can go to that isn't you is at, like, there's so many things that our kid that could happen to our kids that rightfully so feel weird to go to your parents about. And so oh, I, really, yeah. I really feel like all kids should have another safe adult they can go to whether it's therapy a teacher a family friend 
somebody that's um, going to be able to know, be able to discern whether it's something that they need to report or not. Um, but so that if something was happening in the home that the child could go and, and talk about and, and get out. And it holds us accountable as well as parents to be able to know that we're not doing the wrong thing, like illegal things with our children, but um, <laughs> there, shouldn't, <laughs> there shouldn't be anything that they can't tell that person that's going on. I yeah. tried to, I tried to get my son into therapy when he was young. Um, and he just like, he would just sit there and refuse to talk. Like he just wouldn't participate at all. Um, and my, my ex, the, the other parent is narcissistic personality disorder. And of course that was really hard for him growing up with that. And I did my best to like give him tools for navigating it and stuff, but it is something that, you know, was also negatively impacting me. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, I like, I just really wanted him to have the tools, you know, and he's just like, so even now as, as an adult, like, I'll be like, well, you know, therapy could help you manage your stress better and those tools would really help you and you deserve the benefit of that. But <laughs> he's not quite not quite there. I don't it, It's like, I don't know where that came from because he was so little and he was already so resistant to it. But, um, you know, with the like big emotions and stuff like I on that, I had a lot of emotional dysregulation when my son was smaller, like I would get overstimulated and like he would be talking and then touch me and I'd be like, ah, you know, because it was too much. And I didn't know about like the autism or ADHD until the last like year or so last two years. And so once I learned about that and was able to look back at like the patterns of the behavior, I wasn't like, I didn't behave like my parents did who like screamed at me and called me names and hit me and did all that stuff. I just would be like, no, no, it's too much. Please stop. And, but sometimes I would do it with like a really strong intonation and I don't know what's normal or okay in terms of like body language or intonation. So I tend to err on the like robotic side of things where I'm very non- expressive of my feelings so in those moments when I did express emotions it felt like I was being abusive like I because I couldn't you know I didn't know the difference and um once I started learning about the mis emotional dysregulation and I went back and I had conversations with him and was like you know these are things that I've been carrying guilt since you were little you know because I feel like I was like hurting you. Um, and now I understand what was happening in those moments. And we were able to talk about it. And he said that sometimes it did hurt his feelings when, you know, cause he would feel rejected. Cause I would be like, go away, not right now or whatever. And it's something that we were able to talk about. And I think it's, it's cool that there's, you know, with the younger, younger generations who are now starting to have kids that they have, you know, more tools on average to be able to have an awareness and to have those conversations a lot sooner, you know, um, so that their kids can grow up with, with that awareness. And I think like coming off of what you just said with the tools, having social media and having the visibility, I feel like it's a double headed sword though, because some people are seeing little aspects of things in themselves. And then they're like, Oh, I have that instead of being like, oh, no, I have some tendencies that go along with that. It's not necessarily what it is. Um, yeah. But then they also have the tools of if they do have it, seeing that they're not alone and seeing that there is help and figuring out the resources and how to navigate the systems 
because we didn't have that even 10 years ago, the ability to um, know, like have a community that we could reach out to easily and get answers and figure out what are the next steps? Where do I go? Um, what resources are even there for me? And that's, I, I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from, from social media and the visibility is, is the answers are out there. Yeah, that's why I try to make a lot of posts that are like, hey, ask me questions, like comment. And I don't usually get a lot of engagement on those posts, but um, I still post them because like, hey, maybe people will share them with other people who might have questions. Um, because I feel like the biggest way to destigmatize is to educate. And we all have to do our parts to destigmatize the conversation around mental health. And um, I feel like some of the most stigmatized disorders are the personality disorders, the cluster B personality disorders, because they do come with toxic tendencies. They do come with, um, you know, the tendencies to manipulate the tendencies, whether it's intentional or not. They do come with um, things that are very undesirable behaviors. Um, you know, it's not really the same thing as depression or anxiety where everything is kind of just internalized. Like people with cluster B disorders externalize their feelings unless they're like a quiet borderline or something. And people will take that the wrong way and be like, oh, you're mad at me or, oh, I did something. And it's like, no, you didn't do anything. Um, like when a split is triggered within me, I um, I used to just go nuts and be mad and yell and scream at whoever I was splitting on. And now I'll just calmly be like, now that I've done the work, I'll just calmly be like, hey, you triggered me. I'm splitting on you. So I need space from you so that I don't say or do anything I don't mean. Because when I'm splitting, my brain goes from I love you to I hate you in like five seconds flat. And I would never want to tell someone I love that I hate them. Yeah, that's that makes sense. And can you explain a little bit about what splitting means for people that are listening? So splitting is a very common symptom of borderline personality disorder where we kind of go into our black and white thinking, which is a staple of the disorder, um, all good or all bad. And someone, usually our favorite person, um, can trigger the split, but it's anyone can trigger it. Um, it's when we have idealized someone, we love them, we care for them, we, um, we think very highly of them. And then when a split happens, something happens to trigger it, but it can be something that they aren't even aware that they did most of the time. Um, and when we split, we go from that, like that, all that love and admiration to, oh my God, I feel despised. Like I despise you. I don't like you anymore. And this is just a feeling we get in our minds. It's not act an accurate reflection of how we truly feel about the person when we're in that split. It's just kind of our brains make a switch and we have to kind of ride it out and try not to act on it, do our best not to act on it because we know that it will be over eventually. Even if it doesn't feel that way in the moment, we know that it will be over eventually and we will go back to loving that person. It's just something that happens. We don't want it to happen. We don't try to make it happen. It's, 
it's very similar to when um, when someone with depression experiences suicidal thoughts, like they don't want those thoughts. They just kind of happen. Yeah. And they want it to go away. And then they do things to try to make it go away that aren't necessarily healthy. And I deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so looking over my childhood with my mother and probably the biggest time that I like while you're talking about that that I can see and it was really hard for me to see it from any other perspective than my own in the moment and of course you're a child um but is the things that she would say that were so horrible and so but and it was almost like she never said it later and she would go back Mm. to like ignoring that it ever happened and that was just a thing that happened and I don't really feel that way so you don't need to think that I feel that way anymore and I'm like but I still feel that because it happened like when she told me she wished she aborted me when she told me like that I was the cause of her divorce and all of this stuff and and then she would go back to acting normal and to me it still hung on and clung to me and it wasn't normal anymore and I still felt like she felt that way about me and also then trying to go through it in my head of like trying to figure out well is it true did I cause that is that my fault and um, never really dealing with it later when she was out of that mindset and because I was afraid that if I tried to deal with it with her and I did a few times try to deal with it with her and then it would blow up again and it would cause another split for her for me to try to deal with it and so it never got dealt with and it still to this day never has (laughs) my dad has exhibited some splitting behavior but he's never been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder he's just an alcoholic um and he gets mean when he's drunk He's getting, he's been getting a lot better over the years. He's actually in a program right now um, for his alcoholism. Um, And I have had moments with my dad where my dad has admitted to intentionally triggering me, like pushing my buttons and triggering me so that he could see how far he could push me, sort of like an experiment. Um, and that really stung because he has intentionally pushed me into episodes where I was suicidal, homicidal, um, because one symptom of BPD that a lot of people don't talk about that I made a video on this that kind of blew up on Facebook, um, was that we get not only suicidal, but some of us get homicidal when we're triggered. Um, It's not always just suicidal ideation. And I feel like a lot of people don't talk about it because they're ashamed of it or because they're scared that other people will be scared of them. But it's a very real thing about mental health to be homicidal that we need to talk about and we need to discuss because if people don't discuss it, they're never going to get help for it. Yes, that is huge. And that's the other guest I was talking about that we haven't had on yet. That's a big thing that they talked about. Um, they talk about on social media a lot is what they almost did, what they got caught before it happened, but what almost happened and how it got there and what we need to do in society to not stigmatize it anymore so that it doesn't get there for as many people. And, um, cause if we're ashamed of things and don't talk about it, like postpartum depression, not talking about I it. That 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and a Me lot too. of people that have, I hit it. I hit it to the point where I, I had to go into the hospital because I didn't talk about it. And it got to the point where I was seriously thinking about hurting my daughter and I wasn't talking about it. So then there came a point where I was like, wow, I need to go to the hospital before I do something to hurt my daughter because I didn't want to hurt her. And that was never something that I thought that I would actually do. And I never tried to, but I was having very serious thoughts about it. Like images flashing across my mind of me doing various things to harm her. And it was scaring the crap out of me. And I feel like people don't realize that just because someone has a homicidal ideation, it doesn't mean that they necessarily want to hurt anybody. It's just an ideation. It is an intrusive thought. It is something that they don't necessarily want to do but something that their brain is kind of just forcing them to think about. Like there was this one time my dad was intentionally triggering me by invalidating my trauma. He told me that the sexual assault that I'd been through was my fault and that I just was intimate and regretted it and that it wasn't really what it was, all that good stuff. So um, been there. I reacted. I had a rage episode and it was the only time in my life that I have ever truly been homicidal to the point where I almost did something because I actually was throwing DVDs at him. I was throwing books at him, screaming at him, getting, trying to get him to stop. And then I, this was when I was 18, I ran out of the house because I felt like if I stayed in there one more minute, I was going to stab my father. Yeah. And I think that's really common. So for people who have um, either a, a lot of different mental health illnesses, but things that make us feel really strong, um, for abusive people in our life to try to push you to that so that they feel justified and it's, and then it causes the reactive abuse and then they can focus on that instead of what they did. And, exactly. and it's, it's very, very, very common. And those people are attracted to people that they can push to that point because it can make them feel justified in how they treated you beforehand because of how you reacted. Absolutely. It's I so- used to have a, a list of people that I was going to take care of, like, of you know, when I was a Purge kid, that happened. was part of, yeah, that was part of how I, how I dealt right. with like the feelings and the helplessness that I felt in being in such an abusive environment was just having my revenge plotted out. I'd go to the library and read about, you know, things that you could do to people to end their lives and stuff. And, you know, I thankfully I outgrew it, but there was like a window of time there where I was just, just dark enough that, you know, it could have gone another direction. And I had like so so much like rage that I learned from my mom. And so when stuff made me mad, you know, I would just like put my hand through a door or, you know, throw stuff and stuff like that. It was just, it's something that I worked on a bit in my teens, but when, as soon as my son was born, I was like, I can't be like that anymore. And just, just started working on it like a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Over the years, the rage part has, it's not, I no longer feel like I'm like holding it in anymore. It's like, I feel like I've, it's finally turned into like different sets of emotions and stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah. With my, Oh, sorry. (laughs) You're good. With my daughter. Um, she actually lives with my aunt right now and I see her on weekends because while I have gotten immensely better with my mental health, my mental health is not at a point yet where I can, I thought, thought it was good enough to take on because if I didn't think if I thought that things would have turned out this way I wouldn't have had my daughter I just simply wouldn't have um like if I thought that I would be at a point where I couldn't take care of her I wouldn't have had her because it's I'm very pro-choice and I would not want to bring a child into this world that I couldn't take care of um and I thought I could take care of her and then I realized a bit too late that I couldn't um it was around the time she was almost a year old. I asked my aunt for help and I was like, listen, I am getting very overwhelmed taking care of her 24 seven day to day. I am very frustrated with it. My mental health is going down because I can't do the things I want to do. I can't see my friends. I can't talk to them. I can't do my TikTok like I usually do, which is something that really, really helps my mental health is being able to do my TikTok. And it wasn't really that I wanted the freedom and just wanted to run wild and crazy again. It was just that not having that freedom was affecting my mental health. And you don't um, want it to and negatively affect your child. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want, I didn't want my daughter to sit there and struggle because I was struggling. Mm-hmm. So I asked my aunt, I was like, hey, can you take her in for maybe a year or two while I get my shit together? And she said, absolutely. It's, it takes a lot of strength to, to do that, to be able to like admit to yourself and then, you know, then, you know, to miss out on that time. I, you know, I, uh, mad props. It's, it's, thank you. I was thinking about that. Um, I was listening to a podcast about, uh, postpartum and how much people judge women for giving up partial or full custody of their child um at when they realize that they can't care for them or something happens but then they also we judge can't them, judge them because then that's just yeah. putting children into a bad situation like i knew that if i kept my daughter i would not intentionally do anything to harm her but i knew that mentally i wasn't going to be able to push myself past my things that I have, like my ADHD paralysis and things like that. I knew that at this point in time, I wouldn't be able to get past those kinds of things in order to take care of her the way that she needed to be taken care of. And there would have been some unintentional neglect going on. So I chose to split custody with my aunt. So I get to see my daughter on weekends and it works out right now that's yeah. what's working for us in yeah. in that podcast too it had two different cases one where they gave up the child and it was very similar leading up to that point and the other one that they harmed the child and the comments from the one who gave up the child because it ended up in the media and everything people were like how could you do that and then the one who harmed the child like why couldn't they just give the child up and it was like they cannot <laughs> stop you themselves. Never... There's no yeah. cognitive dissonance there. No. 
no and it's like she did the right thing she and i understand why the other person didn't because of the judgment that's why they didn't because they had contemplated it um they had tried to and then their family was like no you can't do that that's you being a bad mom and it's like then they did something um going through postpartum luckily the child survived and now is with family but they the comments it's just like the complete lack of any sort of gosh it's just the the peanut gallery needs to be quieter yes yeah and we need to be louder so that people know that they're not alone (laughs) absolutely I actually this year I was invited to speak um do a presentation on BPD at the National Active Minds Innovation Conference um for mental health uh, I couldn't go, unfortunately, due to a lack of funds because they don't um, fund your trip or anything. Um, you have to kind of pay for it all yourself. But um, I am planning to go next year. I've actually asked my family if, if that could be my Christmas present, if they could just give me the funds to go. Um, oh, that'd be so awesome. That's. I'm glad they invited you. That's huge. And it shows that people are listening and people want to hear and need to hear what you have to say. Yes. Uh, I'm definitely in the description for this going to put your TikTok because people should join your lives and ask questions and interact and show that their support so that more people can get help and you get more visibility because you have a lot of great things to say. And, and I'm sure you're always learning too and want to see other people and how they do things and different um, things going on in the community. But I think it's huge. And your responses were so great. I mean, I know I was asking a lot of questions in there. Thank you. Oh, you're okay. I love it when people ask me questions. (laughs) I just have so many. (laughs) That's why I love that we've been having a lot of guests on here because we get to learn about different people and how our different minds work and um, different resources that are out there. So what would your take home be? So if you had someone in front of you who thought that they might have borderline or one of the other conditions that you talked about, um, what would their first steps be? Uh, Your first steps would be to definitely find a therapist who specializes in personality disorders because there's so much stigma, even in the mental health community, even in the um, therapist community about people with personality disorders. I got very lucky that I didn't, uh, like according to other people's experiences, I got very lucky that I had a therapist that uh, off the bat was okay with personality disorders because... um, a lot of people get therapists who will refuse to work with them because they have a cluster B personality disorder. They'll automatically deem them as untreatable, even though that's not true. Um, I think the biggest take home that I would want someone to get from this is that you don't have to be ashamed of your symptoms so long as you are willing to grow and learn from them. Yes, that's huge. It's, and use the tools that you have available to you. That's a big thing for me. Um, Absolutely. Always be getting new tools and learning about yourself and others and be able to not, I mean, there's always going to be some guilt and shame because of society and how we were raised and grew up, but learning that there are others out there and find a community of people that 
love you and you can talk to and be completely honest with and aren't going to judge you for that. Yes, I'm actually a part of a Discord community called Cluster Blossoms, and it's basically everyone who's everyone um, that's in there has some form of cluster B disorder. Um, and we're all just packed into this space. We've got a bunch of different channels. We even have an unmasking channel where we basically can go in there and just write out how we're feeling, no mask, nothing. Antisocials can talk about their tendencies. Narcissists can talk about theirs. Um, borderlines can talk about theirs and histrionics can talk about theirs and there's no judgment. You know, no matter how bad the thoughts are, there's just, there's no judgment because they're getting it out in a healthy way rather than acting on those thoughts. With people who get it and understand, and then someone else might read that and be like, I felt that way before too. <laughs> and exactly. Not feel alone. That's great. And because I think people, there's just so much stigma in the media and it's so dramatized of what yes. it looks like. And we see the most severe negative outcomes and that's what we spotlight instead of all the individual people that do have these conditions and are living lives but have challenges and instead we just are like oh well that serial killer had that instead of being yeah. like I do believe that the tv show the tv show crazy ex-girlfriend actually does a very good job of depicting um an accurate description of untreated borderline personality disorder keyword untreated yes um yes. unmanaged um it does a very good job of depicting it without making it go all fatal attraction i'm gonna murder someone because they love someone else yes. type things i love that i actually was gonna ask you about that show earlier i love <laughs> that show and i love the so the actress the i forget her name um mm -hmm. but she really really wanted to have a really good balance between comedy and education in the show mm -hmm. and show people that it doesn't have to all be scary and that these things do happen. We can laugh at ourselves later for some of them and realize how ridiculous we were. <laughs> and oh yeah, I do that all the time. Yes, and I can sing songs about how I'm feeling and how, um, how this is in my head and make it come out into the world and reality. And so you can see what goes on in my head outside. And they yes. did a great job on that show. Have you seen that show, Lee? Mm -mm. It, you, you might like it because the lies that are in it, Lee does not like lying in shows. <laughs> the lies that are in it have a purpose and they come out and the honest truth does come out and they deal with it. So. What I really liked was in the first episode, how she was kind of denying her reasons for moving. Like, because that's true. A lot of borderlines will deny the reason they're actually doing something in favor of the way they actually wanted it to be working out. Like I told myself that I, um, let me think of an example. I told myself when I left my current boyfriend, cause I left him during, I also have bipolar disorder. I left him during a manic episode. I told him that I was leaving because he would, I told myself and him that I was leaving because he was abusive. Spoiler alert. He wasn't. Um, I told my, I convinced myself that some of the things he did that were unpleasant were abusive. 
And I convinced myself that that was why I was leaving him. The real reason why I left him was to go sleep with my other ex. And that was during a manic episode, but we have worked it out and we're working on our relationship right now. Um, so hopefully things will get better soon. Um, they have been going in the direction of getting better. Um, I feel terrible that I was so manic that I did something like that. Um, because not only did I tell him that that was the reason I left him, I also told multiple friends of ours. And then when I came out of it, I was like, wait a minute, he is not like this. And then you had to go back to those people and. Yeah, I had to go back to those people and be like, hey, so <laughs> about yeah. that. That's, I mean, that's huge of you to do that. Because uh, there's a lot of people who would just double down and be like, nope, that's the way it was. And yeah. just continue on because you don't want to look bad. But coming out and saying that you made a mistake, admitting to it and admitting to um, why as well it is valid um, but that it shouldn't have happened and correcting it is uh, it's huge and more people should do that because we all Thank make you. mistakes <laughs> yeah it's important for it it's healing for the person that is impacted by it as well because they get the acknowledgement that they deserve and I think like acknowledgement is not it's not as acknowledged as uh as it should be, you know, it's very, very powerful and just helps a lot when things go wrong or when we hurt people and stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Um, are there any plugs that you want to do of where they can find you? I will put them in the description, but not everyone reads that. Um, so. <laughs> I have my TikTok handle is life of a borderline. My Facebook is also Life of a Borderline, and my Instagram is Life of a Borderline BB, which is BBY, um, because Life of a Borderline was already taken. And then my YouTube channel is Life of a Borderline as well. Awesome. Oh, I didn't know you had a YouTube channel. I'll have to check that out too. I do. Um, definitely, like I said, join her lives, ask questions, learn. Even if you don't have this, any of these disorders, there's people in your life that do, and it is huge when you start to learn about people that are around you, and it might make you see them differently if it's someone you work with that you don't get along with and you don't realize that you're just not clicking because you don't understand each other. Just learning about other people is huge, and it's we should never stop growing and learning because we don't know everything. So... Um, this is where I'm super awkward at signing off. So <laughs> It's okay. Me too. I never know how to end things. It's funny in my podcast groups. They're like, they, they've like watched them, my like starts and endings. They're like, honestly, it works for you though. So just keep being awkward. Uh, <laughs> but yes, definitely yeah. follow um, Kayla here and learn and grow. And we appreciate all of you um, joining in and listening this will be on audio and video. If you're on video, audio and going to go over to the video, Lee and I are in costumes, so don't be alarmed. Yeah, I, I do want to say that like I look like I'm sneering and it's literally just the way I did the mouth on my makeup. I'm not sitting here sneering. Like You don't look like you're sneering to me. But... I do. I like every time I looked at my thing, I'm like, God, I look really like unpleasant. <laughs> I didn't think so. I kept looking at the color of your, is it like an 
like a color changing or no i think blue? it's just the lighting here okay. kind of changed it's green <laughs> um, shiny but yeah so thank you everybody and um we will see you next thank week thank you for having me yes thank, thank you. you and then bye I'll... everyone <laughs> bye